David and I cooked up this idea for 15 in response to the Obama administration calling for raising the minimum wage to $9 an hour from $7.25. And we were like, if these are our friends, who needs enemies? Wow. <laughs> right? Like, I love it. You know, like, if this is the best the president of the United States can do, we need a new plan. The number 15 it sounds like a lot to people. But if productivity, if the minimum wage had tracked productivity gains, oh, yeah, no, it would be, be 22 or something yeah. like that. And yeah, so, it's crazy if you look at those curves. That's right. And so we knew that 15 was a relatively conservative number on a historical basis. It's actually halfway between the inflation number and the productivity number. But and it that's seems like a very significant it. leap forward because oh, you know, yeah. at the time, yeah. But by rights, it should be $25 nationally today. Yes. I mean, and, and to be clear, Andrew, if it was, we would live in a very different country. Very different. Wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. We would live in a very different country, um, both economically and politically, because a lot of the economic division that we're experiencing is a consequence of the anger that has been created by the just objective truth of most people getting screwed over the last 40 years. Right. And some people lean left and some people lean right. But the anger is totally valid and um, we have to deal with it. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. This is your co-host, Zach Grauman. On our episode today, we've got Nick Hanauer. He joins, he's an entrepreneur, he's a venture capitalist, and he is an activist who does a lot of work on the minimum wage. Super timely, because we just passed this COVID relief bill and the minimum wage was not bumped to $15 an hour. So it's an interesting, timely conversation with Nick. But before we do that, guys, I want to pause. For those of you, I believe most of you should know, but if not... um, a man in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia, went on a killing spree and killed eight people. Six of them were Asian American women. And at this time of recording, March 20th, the Atlanta Police Department has not confirmed this to be a hate crime, even though very, very much clearly was. And to make it worse, the, the police officer that made a statement was quoting the, the man who shot them. He said um, that that man had a really bad day. It's a direct quote. And, um, obviously, uh, people with bad days don't do things like this. I have bad days all the time. And this has gotten really bad. Violence against the AAPI community um, has spiked since the pandemic started. So the uh, Stop AAPI Hate organization has recorded 3,795 hate incidents since the pandemic started in March 2020. Look, I'm a white male. I have not experienced racism personally anywhere close to any of my friends of of color have. So my perspective is my perspective. But I will say on this campaign and working with Andrew, um, I spent a lot of time getting to know the AAPI community all over the country. A lot of time. In fact, when we were running for president, the only people that would really give us the time of day were the folks in the Asian American community. So some of my best friends and colleagues and mentors um, are Asian and part of this community. I've gotten to know them very well and they are hurting this week. Andrew and Evelyn are hurting this week. I could hear it in their voices. I see it in their faces all week. And it crushes my heart. Um, So I wanted to pause and, and put pour my love and heart out to my Asian American friends. Um, I hope you all can do the same, but I also know talk is cheap. So I want to do something. I'm, I'm going to donate myself personally. Um, there's an organization I want you guys to know about. It's called the, it's called Asian Americans advancing justice. They're an activist group. They do a lot of group work on the ground. Um, so who responds to incidents like this, who, is reaching out to the families, but who also is educating members of the community how to prevent this. And this one's based, they've, they've got an Atlanta chapter. So Asian Americans Advancing Justice. I'll put the link in the kind of description of this episode, but I'm going to donate. So if you can donate to either that organization or others you find that you think are doing great work, please do. And, and if you can't, 
I know it's a hard time for everybody. This is what Andrew recommended and I agree. The best thing we can do is, is start to sh share our humanity more proactively. So find the best thing you do is find somebody who doesn't look like you. Find somebody with a different skin color than you who doesn't look anything like you. And give them a smile. We must have a mindset of abundance and fix this deeply inhuman economy and society we have. It's important to have these moments and tragedy strikes so you feel that and share our humanity. Now, with that, let's get a little more positive. We're going to talk about some fun stuff on the podcast with Andrew. Nick Hanauer joins. He's a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. He's a really, really impressive individual, but he's done a lot of good, particularly on fighting for the minimum wage and just talking about it better, um, which is timely. It's topical. You're going to enjoy this one. I love you all. Enjoy the episode, folks. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. It is my pleasure and thrill to welcome to the podcast someone I've been wanting to get on here for a while, serial entrepreneur, civic activist, founder of Civic Ventures, Pitchfork Economics, Rabble Rouser extraordinaire, Nick Hanauer. Nick, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. It's so great to catch up with you. Seriously. So, Nick, I became a fan of yours when you wrote that piece in Politico that I guess ended up uh, kicking off the term pitchfork economics, where you were yeah. like, hey, FYI, the pitchforks are coming for us. Yes. <laughs> and, and they I, came. And, and, what, and I was like, holy crap, somebody said it. Like, yeah. and, and, and it had to be someone like you yeah. who had had incredible business success, had founded and invested in name brand companies. And so at one point you were like, I remember that article so well, you were like, look, guys, I'm in the top 1% and there are only so many pants I can buy. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And Andrew, you know, I'd had, when I wrote that article, I'd had a sort of a long-term interest in the issue of inequality that was spurred by this incredibly wonky thing that I know you'll appreciate because <laughs> you're a little bit of a wonk yourself. Yes. Um, so I got a look at the income shares uh, that had um, that, that, that the IRS captures that had gone back a long time. And uh, what I discovered, I got I got a look at those in 2006 or seven around then. And what you discovered when you look at those income share numbers was that in 1980, the top 1% of Americans shared about 8% of national income. And the bottom 50% of Americans shared about 18%. Uh, that was in 1980. In 2007, uh, the, the share of income for the top 1% had risen to something like 22 or 23%, while the share of income for the bottom 50% of Americans had fallen from 18% to 12%. And I simply took those numbers and stuck them in a spreadsheet and said, what happens if this, if this happens for another 30 years? And the answer was Armageddon. <laughs> you know, like the problem is, is that if the income for the top 1% goes from 23 to 45 and the income for the bottom 50% goes from 12 to 
six or five percent, which is where I think the numbers took you. It's really super clear that you're not living in a capitalist democracy anymore. You're living in some sort of feudal police state. Uh, yes. Yeah. And I was just like, holy shit. You know, like if this doesn't change, we're in deep, deep, deep trouble. And of course, from 2007 on, things didn't get better. They got worse. Oh, yeah. And they got dr- dr- dramatically worse. And one thing that yeah. was so powerful about that article, which in my mind was like this opening salvo, because you've done all of this incredible work since then, yeah. uh, making the same case. But you were one of the first people to just come out and debunk the entire, uh, hey, the top slice of um, taxpayers are like enormous job creators. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, at the same time, um, sort of like you, I, I got this terrible urge to understand where economics had gone wrong. Because up to that point, the economic p- profession had been saying that all of the policies that had led to this enormous amount of concentration of wealth at the top were good for everybody. Yep. Right? Like that. Rising tide, lifting yeah, all boats. That's right. Like, you know, raising wages kills jobs. Therefore, we shouldn't raise the minimum wage. Rich people are job creators. And the more money we have, the more jobs we create. People are paid their marginal product, which is to say, if you make $7.25 an hour, that's because you're only worth $7.25. You know, there's this always a, there's always a trade-off in economic efficiency um, if you increase justice or fairness in human societies. You know, sort of the canon of neoliberalism in my intu- intuition was that this was all nonsense, right? Because when you look at neoliberalism for what it is, it effectively amounts to a protection racket for the very rich. If you take neoclassical economics and neoliberalism seriously, there's only one thing that can happen is that the rich will get richer and everybody else will get poorer. And so like you, I began a journey to try to essentially figure out where we went wrong and to try to get, try to do things that could get us back on track. Yeah, so uh, the big theme for this conversation, and you are the perfect person to have it with, is what the fuck do we do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because here you are, you're like a business titan. Um, you know, you have a platform, you make a very clear rational case, which is correct. Uh, you point out some of the uh, flawed ideological um, like defense mechanisms that people have around like the current the current winner-take-all economy and its extremity. Um, so so you come out and you you say these things that and you know just about everything out of your mouth I, I've always agreed with. Um, you fight for higher minimum wage um, in your own uh, city that ends up helping to kick off a movement around the country. Um, but I think you would agree with me, particularly during this pandemic, that the extremity is accelerating and getting worse and not not somehow getting any better. Um, and so, you know, and you and I connected on this early on when I decided to run for president, I was like, okay, here's my approach. <laughs> here's my plan. Like, let, let's like, um, you know, let, let's start giving everyone uh, a certain amount of money to, to meet their basic needs. Um, and we had some degree of success, but I'm really interested in what the heck you found while you've been pushing these causes uh, through civic ventures and other measures. Like, how the heck can we turn things around? To be clear, the answer to do what of what to do to turn things around is very, very simple. Uh, getting it done politically is very, very hard. But it does so. So the answer, in my, you know, in my humble opinion. The answer is, is, is simply to require companies to pay, uh, their workers enough to live in security and dignity and for rich people to pay enough tax to sustain the investments that make a democracy go. This is not, it is not complicated. And, and, the, the thing that I want to emphasize is that if you take neoclassical economics seriously, then all, then you also believe that all of the policies that you would, you would impose to do these things are these efficiency killing job killers, right? And that, I mean, you know, if there's a theme to what I want to say today on this podcast is that is a lie that all, <laughs> that, 
that all of that is utter nonsense, that the neoclassical economic models are rooted in assumptions about human behavior and the dynamics of human social systems that are just objectively false. Nick, I'm just going to entertain you for a minute. Um, I studied economics in college, and uh, this is what I remember. Hang on, hang on, I'll show you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Supply and demand. Yeah. So uh, Andrews, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah how exactly. How Supply and demand. Yeah, exactly. As wages go up, employment must come down. And that, and 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 this is just utter nonsense. That 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 believing that. So if you accept the idea that the economy is this. Equilib- closed equilibrium Pareto optimal system, then anything you do to it actually decreases welfare for everybody. But the problem is the economy isn't that kind of the system. The invisible it's hand a- is not somehow like, you know, omniscient and omnipotent and making it all happen. <laughs> no, no. And if there is an invisible hand, it has to do with cooperation, not competition. But the truth is that claiming that when jobs when wages rise, jobs have to fall would be would be the equivalent of claiming that when plants grow, animals shrink. This is obviously nonsense. It's not the way it works. In fact, when animal when plants grow, so do animals. Yeah, <laughs> and you, then plants, yeah, right? More food, because yeah, it, for sure. Because it's an ecology, and 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 there is an ecological relationship between wages and business growth and hiring. When workers have more money, businesses have more customers, and hire more workers. You had empirical experience with this, obviously, in that you kicked yeah. off the $15 an hour minimum wage um, in Seattle and then got data. So uh, can you tell us about how that movement has gone and grown? Uh, and I know it seemed like we were this close uh, to yeah. um, widespread adoption, uh, depending Super on, you know, you were closer to it than I am in terms of what that um, what, what that voting looked like um, in the Senate, it seemed. Yeah. So, but I, I just, I just want to emphasize that We've been raising the minimum wage in the United States of America since 1938. <laughs> we, you know, we've done it federally 22 times. And in zero of those cases did jobs go down, unless the country was in recession. We've also raised the minimum wage hundreds of times in cities and states over the last 80 or 90 years. And in zero of those cases did wages go down. The, the, the thing that's remarkable is that because of this economic theory, because of this academic economic theory that sees the economy in this sort of zero-sum relationship, it was not until 1994 that economists even bothered to check to see if jobs went down after wages there, went there's up. There's a lot of very strange groupthink. <laughs> yeah. No, you know? It's just astonishing. And then this marvelous guy named Alan Kruger and his friend uh, David Carr did a study comparing New York to New Jersey where New Jersey raised the wage, raised wages and New York didn't and discovered and their intent in doing this empirical analysis was to characterize how much raising the minimum wage killed jobs and they discovered to their horror that not only didn't jobs go down, they may have gone up. <laughs> and this kicked off a giant kerfuffle in the academic e- economics profession, where a Nobel Prize winning economist um, named James Buchanan in the Wall Street Journal referred to Cargan Kruger as a bevy of camp following whores. Wow. For, for, having the temerity to challenge what he called the bedrock principle of economics, that if wages rise, employment must fall. If you can get the world to believe that when you raise wages for workers, employment falls and you are, to quote unquote, harming the very people you're intending to help, then you are given both practical and moral permission to keep wages low and profits high. You, you realize that there truly are these ideological bulwarks or defense mechanisms. Absolutely. To, like, people. Um, and I ran into versions of it over and over again all over the country. If I had a choice between uh, something like universal basic income and uh, higher minimum wage, I would choose universal basic income. But if like I don't get universal basic income and the choice is raise the minimum wage, then I'm all for raising the minimum wage. <laughs> and I'm on exactly the, the, the other side of that trade, mostly because I'm a serial 
entrepreneur and capitalist, right? So I really do believe in capitalism. I do believe that it is a great economic system, the best ever devised. But I also simultaneously believe that it is ridiculous and, you know, unforgivable to believe that and also believe that the whole system will come tumbling down if companies are required to pay their workers enough to live in dignity without food stamps, right? Like it's nuts. There is yeah. zero, there is nothing that prevents every company in America, particularly every big company, from paying their workers enough to get by without food stamps. I mean, heck, some of these companies are then just turning to uh, public subsidies and food stamps and be like, hey, right. we're exploiting workers, but don't worry, you can like, here's a, you know, a, a phone number for food stamps. <laughs> I mean, That's it's really right. dark. It's very dark. That's right. It's terribly dark. And, and we don't really have capitalism, true capitalism in this country. We effectively have socialism for the rich. That You know, like most people who get government assistance aren't unemployed. They, they're employed. They, they have jobs. Their employers just don't pay them enough money. And why don't they pay them enough money? Because we collectively have left them off the hook. Because we have been persuaded by this neoliberal nonsense that if Walmart was forced to pay their workers enough to get by without food stamps, somehow the whole system will come tumbling down. Mean, meanwhile, Walmart, to use but one example spends approximately as much, about $6 billion a year, just on stock buybacks as their employees receive in public assistance. Wow. It's just crazy. It's nuts. And so it, the thing about uh, UBI, I have no problem with UBI. I just think that the – and you know, I can't defend this. It just pisses me off. I just think that the <laughs> – you know, the, the, the easier and quicker path to get America back on track is are a set of labor standards that require companies to pay people enough to get by. And if we did that, almost all this problem would go away. That's my view. I think one of the reasons why I, I'm on the other side of that was that, like, I looked at the um, political possibility of uh, changing the labor standards along the way you suggest and reforming what I see as like a, you know, like, as you suggest, like a very, very deranged version of capitalism. <laughs> that, 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 and I yeah. thought like, which of these two, two things do I think like, you know, we could make happen. And you've been working on one for quite some time. And it's one reason why, you know, I, I want to hear from you, um, like how we move that forward. And then I, I jumped in with this other like version, yeah. uh, like in part because, but I, I, I'm with you in the sense that, um, that, that the, that we are living in a world where uh, very large corporations and certain types of individuals like uh, are um, uh, being treated like incredibly like you know favorably and generously yeah. <laughs> by, by our system, and then we're we're looking around saying like oh rugged individualism for folks who are working at Walmart and the rest of it. That's right. This is crazy. You know, here here's another canonical example that people are, are using right now is that they, the the bailout of the airline industry uh, in the pandemic. Right. Well, we, so the public taxpayers effectively gave the airline industry $50 billion to help tide them through this difficult circumstance. But in the prior five years, the, the airline industry spent collectively about $65 billion on their own stock, returning money to shareholders and to themselves. Yeah. Right. So. In a we, way, we're just like pumping all this money essentially just right. to, to shareholder buyback. We buy subsidized bags. these selfish, short-sighted shitbags, um, you know, because, well, we've got to save the industry and protect the workers. So, you know. You could have protected Scott, the workers, you know, by sending the workers money. <laughs> you, yo, you could exactly. have done that. <laughs> That's no, what I was. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, as Scott Galloway points out frequently, you know, we should be kind to people and merciless to companies. Part of the problem here, Nick, is that like we find it much easier to find the companies and shove money into their hands yeah. than we do like find the people. But all of that is a consequence of 45 years of neoliberal policy, of getting effectively economics upside down by, by, for, for, by mistaking who the true job creators in a market economy are. It's, it's middle and working class people who earn enough 
to get by and uh, thrive and consume, but also have the economic security to improve their circumstances, to get good educations, to effectively raise kids. You know, like it's, you know, like when I consider how hard it was for me and my wife to raise functioning kids, <laughs> given our circumstances. That, that's actually what got me to run for president, Nick. When my, my wife and I had our first son and it just beat the shit out of us so bad. And I was just like, there are two of us. <laughs> We're like competent. We have resources and this kid is kicking our ass. And I, then I was like, how the heck does a single mom like do, do this? And then that, that's what actually what, what made me run for president. The only reason it requires superhero dumb to do that is because we have let these giant corporations off the hook. Because if those companies were required to pay those folks enough to live in security with one job, it would be possible. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So you're talking about this economic orthodoxy and neoliberalism that I agree there has been some kind of very strange, almost cultish acceptance of certain ideas. Yeah. Um, and you yourself got a philosophy degree, I want to say, yeah. at a college, and you did not get an MBA or any of that jazz. Nope. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Yeah, and then you had. Uh, but I math- did read all the books, just to be oh, clear. Oh no, no, no! Don't worry yeah. about it. Like, yeah. uh, but, but I'm just, but I'm just suggesting this in part because I feel like you weren't acculturated in a particular way. It's like, a, like a lot of the folks that end up just imbibing <laughs> this correct. stuff, like studied. Maybe economics in college. Maybe they got an MBA at Harvard. Maybe they went out there. And was, you yeah. know, th- th- there's a lot of that. Whereas you, you were studying uh, like Kant and uh, you know. That's right. Like, uh, no, I, I, and I think you're you're really right. You know, if you go to Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School, they teach you from day one that the only purpose of the corporation is to enrich shareholders. And Maybe one of the most destructive ideas in uh, human yeah, history. Yeah, that, that that's one. right. And, <laughs> and, and, and for folks listening to the podcast, what's really important to remember about that claim is that it wasn't that, that Milton Friedman first made that claim in 1972 and it got enshrined into policy and culture and everything else and certainly corporate behavior. But Milton Friedman was making a much broader claim than it sounds. He didn't just say – he wasn't effectively say – saying, screw working people, you, the only thing you have to work at, worry about is enriching yourselves. He made a much broader claim, which is, if you screw working people and only worry about yourselves, that will be good for everyone, including working people. That was the big claim, right? Is that his claim was that by maximizing value for shareholders, the entire society would benefit, including the workers who got screwed. And people bought it. I mean, it's hard to believe, but they I'm bought very it. pervasive, you know. Because That's it right. Came out of uh, Harvard Business School, and everyone was like, "Well, like the Harvard people are saying this." So yeah, 
Sounds good to me. <laughs> Will my bonus be better? <laughs> Talk about your engagement with policy, because I'm really curious myself, really. And like, because I think that you and I have a lot in common. So as you know, I run an enterprise called Civic Ventures, which is um, sort of my version, my wife and my, our version of philanthropy. And instead of just giving dough away to the United Way or, you know, the local hospital, what we try to do is create structural change at the intersection of policy and politics. And one of the anchor strategies or assumptions that we make about social change in America is that all important big change starts locally. So, so whether it was the eight hour day or marijuana legalization or given what, you know, like, uh, you know, w w you pick the big policy. It started in a city or state, estab established the policy, proved that it worked, then it went bigger. And so what we do is look for transformational opportunities that can catalyze national action, but that we can try, um, first in either our city or state or another. So fun. You're like the, the, uh, Civic Innovation Lab, and you look Correct. around and say, all right, Correct. we're going to yeah. roll out a $15 an hour minimum wage, which you did in Seattle. What year? Uh, that was uh, 2013. In 2012, um, my part uh, uh, our partners at SEIU had uh, um, workers go on strike for 15 around the country. And at the same time, we started a campaign to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour in a small town called SeaTac just out of Seattle. And so we, we sort of pioneered the idea, ran the camp, ran the initiative campaign and won by like 60 votes or something like that in this small town. But that effort completely transformed the mayor's race that was happening at the same time in Seattle. And so the guy that was um, got uh, elected mayor got elected on a platform of raising the minimum wage to 15 in Seattle. And he created a working group uh, that I was part of. There were 20 people um, and my colleague, David Rolf, uh, co-chaired it. He, he co-chaired it. And, uh, and, you know, and we pushed through 15 I don't know, 90 days later or something like that in Seattle. Wow. Yeah. And then, then it turned out that Seattle did not slide into the ocean and it did not rain cats and dogs and stuff like that. It actually and did then, quite well, didn't it? That's right. And then, <laughs> you know, unemployment fell from 5.9 to 3.9% in the following two years. And, 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 and then it went to San Francisco and then, you know, around the country, which is how social change happens. David and I cooked up this idea for 15 in response to the Obama administration calling for raising the minimum wage to $9 an hour from 725. And we were like, if these are our friends, who needs enemies? Wow. <laughs> right? Like, I love it. You know, like if this is the best the president of the United States can do, we need a new plan. And so we, I mean, just between us chickens, well, I guess it's a podcast, so everybody will know. We never expected to win. We, <laughs> it, it, we, we, it, we, so the number 15 sounds like a lot to people, but if productivity, if the minimum wage had tracked productivity gains, oh, yeah, it no, would be, be 22 or something yeah. like that. And yeah, so, it's crazy if you look at those curves. That's right. And so we knew that 15 was a relatively conservative number on a historical basis. It's actually halfway between the inflation number and the productivity number. But and it seems like a very significant it. leap forward because oh, you know, yeah. of the time. Yeah. But by rights, it should be $25 nationally today. Yes. I mean, and, and to be clear, Andrew, if it was, we would live in a very different country. Very different. Wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. We would live in a very different country. Um, both economically and politically, because a lot of the economic division that we're experiencing is a consequence of the anger that has been created by the just objective truth of most people getting screwed over the last 40 years, right? And some people lean left and some people lean right, but the anger is totally valid and um, we have to deal with it.
Well, I love the vision. And one of the reasons why um, I love it is that it just values people's time at a more appropriate rate. One of the reasons why like I'm pro universal basic income relative to, to other measures is that it values some of the time that right now doesn't get considered as uh, employment. And, right. um, you know, like, for example, you know, if my wife is at home with our boys and, you know, like, uh, right. like that do- doesn't count. But, zero but, in GDP calculation. Yeah, zero in GDP. Zero. But, but, there is, but the, the same principle uh, applies where if you are elevating people's wages, you're just valuing people's time more. Like one of 100%. the reasons why I'm pro UBI is like we're just va- you should just value people's time like intrinsically. And, and right. like, like, so, but the, but the principle um, is, is very similar. It's one reason why when you talk about um, you know, elevating these things, like I, I just imagine more human dignity, which there, there is um, immediately. So, so you surprise yourself and win. Um, and then you're like, oh my gosh, like we're getting this done in Seattle. And then <laughs> that happens 90 days That's later. That's right. And, and then, I, yeah, and then, then, then what happens you know, next? And SEIU drove it super hard and super successfully around the country. Um, Bite for know, 15. Mary, yeah. That's right. Mary Kay Henry did an extraordinary job in leadership there. Um, CJ Grimes, who ran the National Fight for 15, was amazing. And a bunch of other people who, uh, you know, I could mention. But, the, then the question to your point is, Andrew, what's next, right? Because the minimum wage is uh, like it's a start, but there's a thousand things that you can do. And I will tell you, in my opinion, what the second most important thing is that we have been fighting since 2014, I think, is the overtime threshold, speaking of time. So the overtime threshold is the threshold below which if you, if you work for more than 40 hours a week, they have to pay you time and a half. And in the day, like when we used to have a thriving middle class 40 years ago, that threshold covered not just 100% of hourly workers, but it also covered 62% of salaried workers, which means that effectively it covered almost everybody except the big bosses. Okay? And what happened over 45 years of neoliberalism is that that – so. A, people like me turned uh, hourly workers into salaried workers and pitched them fake titles like assistant manager or director of filing. Yes, (laughs) and you get a business card. And then that standard fell um, to, to, uh, 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 and uh, it just got updated. But as of last year, if you earned $23,600 a year or less, you got overtime. But that means if you were in $23,700 federally, and I call you assistant manager, I can make you work 70 hours a week and, and not pay you one more dollar than I was. Keynes projected that we'd have uh, like a 15-hour work week by now because we're so productive. Um, yeah. and, and then he got the productivity number right, but our work week has just gotten longer and longer because of some right. of the things you're describing. Because I was exactly. like, oh, you're there, and like work, is, work just kind of expands. Yes, <laughs> it does. It does. And because people like me employing other people had this enormous incentive to turn three 40-hour-a-week jobs into two 60-hour-a-week jobs, right? As if I don't have any limit on how hard I can press people to work, then what I want to do is, is get two people to work as much as three used to and pocket the difference, right? Imagine how profitable that is. Imagine how profitable that is to have a thousand people working 40 hours a week and then uh, presto magico, now you have 650 people working 60 hours a week for the same price. I remember one of Yikes. the things that, that, that expanded the work week, and this is going to date me a little bit, but whatever, um, was Blackberries. Like as soon as you had a Blackberry, yeah. then, like, then people could get you anytime. And then obviously right. that, that morphed into smartphones and people can get it, uh, people anytime. And now no, for like, sure. the work week goes on forever. <laughs> but, but one of the reasons the work week goes on forever is that all those people with Blackberries were not protected by this labor standard, Right. Because in the day, you couldn't get people to work at home. They'd be like, well, now you have to pay me overtime. So is the plan to have the overtime threshold uh, applied to uh, salaried workers as well as wage workers? Well, it is presently applied to salaried workers at $32,000 a year, which which effectively is almost no salaried workers. 
Um, but again, using this theory of local first change in Washington state last year, we pushed through, uh, the nation's highest, uh, overtime threshold. I believe, I believe it is. Tell us at, more. Tell us at, more. At, and at full implementation, it will be at about $83,000. So what we are presently doing is, is putting pressure on the Department of Labor and the Biden administration to in either enact a law or change the labor standard so that if you earn $83,000 a year or less, you are automatically uh, uh, entitled to overtime, pay it time and a half if you work more than 40 hours a week. This would be transformative, and I will say it would be a job creator in many, many contexts because someone Huge. would look up and, and say, wait a minute, um, I'm going to have to pay my workers overtime because right now they're working 55 hours a week and that's time and a half. So how right. about I go employ like another set of people to try and keep everyone at 40? That's right. And so one of the secrets to understanding why wages have not risen for a really long time is that if you can 40 million times across the economy turn three jobs into two, well, you've taken 15 million jobs out of the economy, plus or minus, or 12 million jobs or whatever it is, right? And this is why structural unemployment is so high is because companies can get workers to work more hours without being forced to hire more people. And so everybody's just on this treadmill. So when you say that you launched this um, initiative in Washington State, what does that process look like? On this particular uh, policy change, we didn't have to pass an initiative. We simply had to persuade the Labor Department to change the standard. So oh, the state of Washington, wow. Uh, in the state of Washington. So that took, uh, a, a, it took us about a year of strategizing, organizing, and political pressure and sort of narrative in the press. But if we want, like if you want, it, the last time we raised the minimum wage in the state of Washington, we did it via initiative. Among other things that my team does is we run all the gun violence politics in the state. We stood up an organization called the Alliance for Gun Re Responsibility, and we have now passed four statewide initiatives and probably 25 laws uh, wow. to make the state safer from gun violence. But to pass an initiative, you need to, uh, you need to write the law. Uh, you need to get the attorney general to, um, uh, essentially, uh, say it's okay and to assign it a ballot title. And then you need to collect about 350,000 signatures. And then you need to win the campaign. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, uh, I have, you know, Civic Ventures is a team of so nine cool. political professionals that are absolutely world class at doing all of those things. And so we write the law, uh, you know, collect the signatures, run the campaign, raise the money. So um, awesome. And then and then do it again. So you got a version of this passed in Washington State. Uh, the where the overtime threshold changed. Um, and what year was that? Last January. It went so, into effect. So recent. But yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So overtime, we put a full court press on the Obama administration to change the overtime threshold. And to make an extraordinarily long story short, um, they came up short. That they went about half as far as they should have and they did it at the very last minute of the second term. And as soon as the, and they didn't fully implement it. And soon, as soon as the Republicans came, uh, came into power, they killed it. The Obama White House issued a report on the automation of labor. And they literally issued it like, it was something like December, like uh, 29th, uh, like 2016 or like whatever. It was like the last day in office. They sent out a report being like, and, and you're screwed. Yeah, the report was very frightening. The report was like, and we're going to automate away 83% of jobs that like, you know, where people get paid 20 bucks or less at present. And, and, and there was like, turn the lights out. <laughs> See ya. Yeah. So, so that Have was fun. like, that was one of my, my experiences where I was like, whoa, it's like dropped this bomb of report, like, you know, on their way out of the office. Um, so, so that, that stinks that obviously after Trump takes off office, they're not going to yeah. uh, adopt those Correct. changes. 
it, it has not gone all the way to 83. It takes four years more. I think, you know, it's, it's a phase in thing in Washington state as it probably should be everywhere just to get, give people a, a chance to, um, accommodate it. But, um, uh, but now we're driving hard to try to get the administration to adopt that standard nationally. Wow. So, so is, is this a Marty Walsh thing or is this a Joe Biden yeah. thing or who, who, yeah, like who's both. on this one? Both. I mean, it's the Marty Walsh. I mean, we're talking to um, the folks who work for Marty Walsh in, in the Labor Department. And, um, but we're also circulating the idea of actually passing this legislatively um, uh, between you and me. If I was Biden, I would want to try to pass this legislatively because th- po- just politically and economically, there is no policy that is available to Democrats that more directly benefits uh, middle class people. Do you know what I mean? Like the minimum wage this, is this, fantastic. This would, yeah, this would be a, yeah, no, this would be a big right. deal for a lot of people. But it would be a huge transformative deal for tens of millions of Americans, many of whom voted for Donald Trump in the last sure. election. Right? Oh, oh, okay, Nick. So yeah. Um, so what is the catchy name for uh, for this measure? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's overtime. And I guess what you're saying to me is that's a really crappy, not very catchy name. Well, so, so I know I, I, I am suggesting that, which Nick. I'm, because, which I'm admitting. <laughs> because right now I'm like, let's champion uh, overtime before people are like, <laughs> like what, 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 what is though, that? Though, though I understand how incredibly uh, transformative it would be positively. Like, wait, wait, you know, wait, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, okay, I've got it. I've got okay. it. All right. Fight for 40. Fight for 40. That's a good, you know what? That's pretty goddamn good. That's not bad, right? Because fight for 15 was very, very successful and alliterative. And like you hear it. So if you say fight for 40. A star is born. I think it's pretty good. It's pretty good, right? Because you hear it and you're like, like fight for 40. You're like 40 bucks an hour. It's like, no, 40 hours a week. And then you're like, oh shit, 40 hours a week. Um, and yeah. then it's like, yeah, and if you're working for more than that, then you should get paid overtime. And everyone will be like, hell yeah, fight for I 40, Nick. I think that is absolutely terrific. I, I, well, w- w- more to come. On all the little buttons, we're going to have a little asterisk and say, by Andrew Yang. No, 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 no. <laughs> no credit necessary. Just freaking, um, as long as it happens, you know, like uh, I'm, 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 I'll be very, very glad. And, and, you know, one of the most encouraging things going is the Biden administration's and, you know, I think the Democratic Party's acknowledgement generally that this is a time for bold action. Yeah, that's, and, been, that's been what my conversations with them have also yeah, indicated. Like they need to deliver the goods to they, people. They, they have a window of time where they're like government has to demonstrate that it can actually improve. Do things. shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And so, you know, the time is ripe for. I think a much more constructive dialogue about this particular thing. But anyway, I mean, you know, like there's a thousand little things. One of the things that, and and I'm not sure how you feel about this, but one of my little bugaboos is non-competes. If you're earning $65,000 a year and hanging on by your fingernails, the last thing you're going to do is go to war with a lawyer over whether your non-compete is enforceable. And until recently, places like Jimmy John's were forcing uh, people who made sandwiches for seven dollars an hour into into signing non competes too, but but the thing about non competes is it's just a way to move power from individuals to corporations. So imagine a world in which nobody ever could had to sign a non compete except maybe the CEO, which meant that at any point you could offer your services and skills to the people across the street who are competing. Well, guess what happens to wages, right? They go up a lot for a lot of people. For the vast majority of workers, uh, the non-compete should not be appropriate. I, I totally agree with this. Um, so keep going. We've got those three because I, I personally think the fight for 40 is something that we really should be um, – driving hard because that would be a game changer would create millions of jobs like around the country I'm thinking um, or would like see a lot more money go into people's hands a hundred percent it's so benign like most people looking up would be like 
Sure. <laughs> like fight yeah. for 40. Who's not going to be for that? Yeah. 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 No, you're absolutely right. And, and it, it does two things. It, 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 it creates millions of jobs, but it also increases lots of, you know, millions and millions and millions of people's wages, not just Andrew, because they all of a sudden earn overtime, but even more because their employers are like, look, it is too complicated to track this. You make 70, I'm raising you at 83 just so I don't have to deal with this. You're like a lot of people who make it 83. (laughs) Exactly. There would be a lot of people in America. Anybody between 65 and 83 would probably all of a sudden be making 83. And uh, or 83,001 or whatever. And that's to the good, right? Like that's an amazing, uh, you know, that's an amazing, yeah. I think the threshold at which uh, people's happiness reaches like a, you know, near optimal level is like 75,000. So you're, you're trying to land at 83 actually makes a lot of sense from a human perspective. Just, yeah. just, just say it, just share it. <laughs> yeah. But you know, uh, as you know, Andrew, there's so many things that we have to do to get the country back on track. We have to find a way to properly tax the very wealthy and use that money to make investments in the, in, in, you know, in the country. We have to pay people fairly and we have to get our, you know, we, and we have to reform our democracy and make sure that this insane amount of uh, voter suppression that the right Terrible. is engaging in right now is, you know, is headed off at the pass. It's just, it's, it's super embarrassing. Well, Nick, talking yeah. to you is very, very uplifting, uh, which I knew it would be. I was very excited for a reason. Um, if someone wants to follow you, uh, support your work, uh, hear your thoughts, you have written a couple of books, um, but your podcast is Pitchfork Economics. Like, How else can someone keep track of you and lend a hand to Civic Ventures or anything you're doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, Civic Ventures is, you know, on the internet. Uh, my, I'm, you know, I'm at Nick Hanauer on Twitter. Uh, if you're interested in a sometimes profane, uh, and, uh, I, I use the F word on this podcast. Yeah, no one yeah, does. Yeah, it's yeah. all good. Let the fight for 40 commence. If that becomes a thing, I'm going to be so proud, Nick. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, it's a really good idea. Uh, it, I, I, I'm, being serious, uh, as soon as I hang up, I'm going to run that by some people. I think it's incredibly clever. Well, Nick, so glad to connect. Let's keep in touch. All the best uh, in your quest to help people and families and workers get more yeah. of what they deserve in this economy. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to celebrate some victories sometime soon. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. It's always so great to connect.